0: You're listening to the Women's Hope Podcast of the Masters University with Dr. Shelby Cullen and Kimberly Cummings. Join them as they bring hope and encouragement through 25 years of combined experience in biblical discipleship and counseling as ACBC counselors. Shelby and Kimberly provide biblical and practical wisdom by coming alongside women with the teaching and resources necessary to grow in the grace and the knowledge of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are excited to be in our special studio this morning because we have a special guest in our midst. But before I introduce him, I want to welcome my fun, fantabulous friend and co-host, Kim Cummings. Kim, how are you doing this morning?
1: I love the alliteration there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing in this somewhat cold California morning, I should say?
1: Well, you know, I have a sweater and boots today. So a sweater and boots. <laughs> In California, anything below 80, that qualifies as winter weather. So, yeah, I'm doing great. God is good. He's on the throne, and I get to be with you guys. So...
0: It's can't think good. of
1: a can't think of a better thing.
0: Yeah, for those listeners out there, it's about sixty-two degrees today. We're all wearing sweaters and scarves, which is hilarious. But my daughter, who lives in Michigan, it's actually thirty-three degrees and snowing. So Hard pass.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's facing a real winter. <laughs> mm. But anyway, um, last time we were together in the podcast studio, we discussed the difficulty that family members sometimes face. When they're together, sometimes you have unbelieving family or friends uh, that you have to deal with. And just the importance of being proactive um, and looking for ways to guard our hearts through the reading of scripture. And in particular, you and I majored on taking a deep dive and examining Ephesians 4. 17 to 20. Well, I think we all went all the way through 32, actually, from what I remember. And we were just so encouraged uh, by Paul's biblical argument that is in Christ ones. We really are no longer the people that we once were. We've been changed from the inside out. And so as we continue to traverse, as we say, this side of heaven, we must be committed to continual change and growth for the glory of God. And so today... We wanted to continue our discussion on doing the hard work of true peacemaking, or what our special guest likes to call biblical conflict resolution, and our special guest is none other than Dr. John Street. Um, I've been friends with him for years, and I've also been a colleague of his. I don't know if he remembers this, but I actually met Dr. Street at my very first acbc conference i think it was in little rock arkansas many many moons ago and i was attending uh the masters of biblical counseling event for the masters university remember how they used to do the dinners and i think i was roped into the program at that event (laughs) (laughs) worked yeah and it worked i think chris crop was uh the the person that was in charge of that um But Dr. Street has been the chair of the MABC department and a professor of biblical counseling at the Master's University, as well as the seminary, for close to 20 years now. And I've had the privilege of not only having him as a professor in that program, but about eight years after we met, I accepted the call to be his office manager at one point. I was an adjunct professor in the program, and now... I get the privilege of being an assistant supervisor, working alongside him when we um, work with women who are training um, to get their ACBC certification. Speaking of which, uh, Dr. Street is not only a fellow with the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, but he's also the president of the Board of Trustees for ACBC, which all of us are very, very thankful for. He's been doing that for so long and it's just a delight To see that continuity. Um, Dr. Street has been married to his wonderful wife, Janie. She's a wonderful friend as well. And I think they've celebrated at least 41 years of marriage at this point.
2: Forty-five.
0: Forty-five. Okay. That obviously the bio I was looking at was old. Yeah, the old bio. (laughs) (laughs) But I do know that you have four great kids, adult Uh kids, and I know them all. And I've worked with a couple of them. Yes. And as far as grandparenting, which is the most wonderful season in life, um, (laughs) I know that you have six really wonderful grandchildren. Yes, yes. So, Dr. Street. Two in heaven. Oh, two Two in in heaven. heaven, That's right. Six here. Six here. That's right. So, we want to welcome you back to the program because you've been on our program before, but Mm -hmm. it's truly a delight to have you back.
2: It's a pleasure to be back as well. And, uh, you know, your podcast. The women that I run into on a regular basis is quite influential, and it's growing in terms of influence out there among the Christian uh, feminine world, and I'm excited to see that because we need more podcasts to women that are really serious about taking good scriptural texts and exegeting them and explaining them well, um, because oftentimes a lot of podcasts, get involved in a lot of emotions and feelings and peripheral issues um, that really bring no growth and no substantive help to Christians. So it excites me to be a part of a podcast like this.
0: Wow, I am really encouraged by that. I know Thank that you. that is definitely Kim and Mind's heartbeat.
2: Mm-hmm. Is
0: that we would be um, we would handle the Word of God accurately and in a way that's just applicable and helpful for those that listen. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yes, and not so. get sidetracked by
1: the worldly issues because mm-hmm. Scripture, as we address Scripture, it'll address those issues. And so we we don't want to get sidetracked with the the stuff that. Uh, won't help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus yeah. Christ. So, yeah, thank you so much.
0: That's yeah, right. thank you so much. And so we'll just get into our questions because mm-hmm. we have a lot of them for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so our topic for today, of course, is the biblical conflict resolution. And, um, you know, as we know, Dr. Street, this side of heaven, even those who are in Christ, we just face conflict. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's just the reality of of living in a fallen world. Um, So at times we just can't avoid it, you know. Um, So I thought it might be really helpful in our discussion today to begin with, um, you know, whether when we're talking about conflict, whether it be in a church setting or just with family and friends, maybe just helping us to understand firstly, what is the source of our conflict Mm -hmm. with each other? And then if you don't mind following up, it's kind of a two-part question, but following up with what can we do about it or how can we guard against it? So Mm -hmm. the source and then... What to do about it.
2: Really good questions. And they come up quite frequently when you're really dealing with uh, family uh, situations, church situations, uh, conflicts between good personal friends. Sometimes people have been friends for years and years. Husband and wife relationships. That particular issue comes up frequently in marital counseling. So um, you find yourself as a counselor dealing with that issue over and over and over again. Uh, one of the things, just for clarification purposes, that we need to, to think about here, the world kind of talks about conflict resolution. That's kind of a, a worldly term in the sense that our goal is not necessarily to resolve conflict. Our goal here is to honor and glorify the Lord, whether the conflict's ever resolved or not. And sometimes some conflict is not resolved. So sometimes I prefer to use the term conflict or biblical conflict reconciliation, because our goal is not just getting rid of the conflict. Our goal is to help to bring two parties together in a reconciled relationship. That's what our goal is. Now we're talking about it. Uh, that uh, something that's serious and very biblical here. Now, sometimes that's not achievable. As uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19 talks about the fact that sometimes there has to be divisions among you to see who's approved of God. So sometimes those divisions are actually there for a purpose. Uh, the other thing that we've gotta be very careful about is viewing conflict as always negative. It's not negative, it's God sent. Oftentimes, and uh, well, everything in our life, Mm -hmm. in terms of sovereignty, is part of God's design in our lives. Um, So, um, God always intends any kind of adversity, a difficulty, uh, conflict, um, for the purpose of um, drawing us closer to Him, helping us to be more Christ-like, more holy in our walk. And so, rather than looking at conflict as a very, very negative thing, we need to look at it as a great opportunity to grow. Because seldom do we really, really grow when life is going easy, we're comfortable, and seldom do we grow like that. Now, I know uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7 talks about discipline yourself unto godliness. And we can exercise a certain amount of self-discipline in our own life in order to bring about godliness. But Substantive real change in our life occurs when God sends a traumatic disagreement, conflict, uh, an adversarial relationship into our life. And even though in our personal relationship with that other person, we want to avoid them as much as possible, it's there to dig down deep to show us our own hearts. It's there for that kind of purpose. Um, this is exactly what God said in Deuteronomy 8 when he talked about the fact that, why did I send the people of Israel into the wilderness for 40 years? He says to know their hearts. And when God said that there in Deuteronomy 8, he, he was not saying that so that he could know their hearts. He already knew their hearts. He's omniscient. He knows everything. All right. He did. he sent them into that trial and that difficulty in the wilderness experience so that they would know their hearts. And the implication was they wouldn't know their hearts if they didn't go through that trial. Oftentimes, conflicts that are very difficult and sometimes hurtful actually reveal certain things about our hearts that we would have never, ever seen in a million years. But God so designed it in our life so that we could see it. And that way, it becomes very constructive. It becomes very profitable. The other thing that the world kind of focuses on is that we need to be peacekeepers. And the Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible talks about the fact that as Christians, we need to be peacemakers. Peacemaking is one step in the broader reconciliation process. There are a lot of people who like to keep peace and they want peace and they'll do anything. They'll even lie to keep peace, all right, in in a relationship which is wrong to do. Uh, they won't bring up the truth because they know it's going to irritate the other person and then so they, they they're really dishonest in order to have peace. That's not what Christians do. We are peacemakers in the sense that we'll bring up hard issues in order to help others and help ourselves um, in our walk with Christ, we'll bring these things up. Even though it may cause initial conflict, this is what ultimately is going to bring really good peace. So what's the source of all this is what Shelby was asking. And the ultimate answer to that, obviously, is answered in James chapter 4. Well, James 4, James talks about in the broader literary argument of the text There he talks about, he asked the question first, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And uh, I I think that the average Christian today If they weren't reading the rest of that verse and did not know the rest of that verse, they'd say, well, the reason why there's so many conflicts is because people have adversarial personalities, and they have one personality that conflicts with another personality, and that's the reason why we have so many conflicts. I've heard that over and over again in marriage counseling, and um, it's almost as if, uh, like, for example, some of the most difficult marriage counseling is where you have um, step Family relationships, step-parenting relationships, what the world calls blended families, um, put together, and and as a result of that, they think that the reason why these two families can't work together in one household is because uh, mm-hmm. certain people have one personality and other people have another personality. Now we can go into a lot of depth on that, but biblically, from a biblical standpoint, personality is not fixed; it's fluid. It changes. And we almost act like, well, that person is just that way because that's their personality. No. Oftentimes, I'll say to my classes, um, I'm not the same personality I was when I graduated from high school. And you ought to be happy about that.
0: <laughs> All right?
2: You ought to be happy about that. And that usually brings a few smiles. But that's really true because sanctification process changes us fundamentally. Uh, even the idea of repentance changes us fundamentally. Um, and if you're going through a constant repentance process, as we should do, as First John says, then we're constantly changing, hopefully for the better, to be more Christ-like, more holy. So that's going to change our responses, the way in which we respond to one another. And, and all of that personality theory, all of that stuff goes back to ancient Greek philosophy and mythology, where it was believed Hippocrates, who developed what was called the Hippocratic Oath, was basically the person who said the way that we are is kind of fundamentally rooted in one of four bodily humors, Uh, the blood, the phlegm, the uh, yellow bile, and black bile. And the Latinized terms on that, blood would be sanguine, phlegm would be phlegmatic, uh, yellow bile would be caloric, and black bile would be melancholia. All right. And And so he would illustrate it by saying, well, you take a person who is really outgoing, sanguine, life of the party kind of a person, uh, and you uh, drain their blood, it changes them. All of a sudden, they don't have any energy anymore. Their whole personality's changed is the implication. That's where bloodletting came in. And that was proof that this is rooted in your bodily humors. Or if somebody was really kind of negative, pessimistic, tended towards depression, that kind of person, it's rooted in your black bile. So he would give them very powerful uh, herbal laxatives. And once a person's been in the john for two or three days, all right, um, they're just, uh, everything looks up. Let's put it that way. Everything looks up. It changes their whole personality. But we know that that's not true. The, the whole modern day enneagram is based upon that same fallacious idea that somehow you've got this rooted, you find your number and you find your your particular personality and that's who you are and then other people have different personalities and and all, all of that is rooted in that same false assumption that somehow we have fixed personalities. Well, that's not what causes fights and quarrels among people. That's not it at all. James is very clear. Is it not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And what he's talking about here is that this deals with a heart-level issue here. This is what wages war there. It's heart-level issues, things that you want, your pleasures, what you want, what you desire more than anything else, comes into conflict with what somebody else desires. And that causes major conflict, major problems, something you want or don't want comes in conflict with what someone else wants or doesn't want and then that that's it and then he and he says in verse 2 of James 4 you lust and you do not have so you commit murder now i don't think the early christians were literally running around murdering each other mm-hmm. he was talking about murder in the same way that jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 22 or later on where john talks about it in 1 John 3:15 It's a ritualistic kind of murder. In their heart, that's what they were doing. Um, Here in LA, we've got huge traffic problems. I mean, you can see it. You want to see murder occur, just go on the LA freeway. (laughs) All right? You can see people uh, glaring, honking their horn, and other people, you know. And you can go to auto stores and have put right on the dashboard of your car, Uh, a little thing that uh, has little buttons on it and you get stuck in really bad traffic, you can punch these buttons and one of them says a missile. Another one's a machine gun. You know, and you can be ritualistically, figuratively blowing up all the cars in front of you as if they're in your way. All right. Well, that's ritualistic murder. All right. That's, That's what's going on you You fight and you quarrel because you do not have. So you commit murder. There's that ritualistic murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, James says. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. And the idea here was proper motives. Because then in verse 3, he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, you're asking about these things and you're actually demanding these things because of what you want, what you think is going to bring you happiness and pleasure. That becomes the source of quarrels. Now, I know like in family relationships, a lot of this gets rationalized where um, a husband will say, Well, I'm just doing this to defend the children. And the wife will say, no, I'm the one that's doing this to defend the children. So we use the children as pawns in this, but it's really what each of them thinks is going to bring themselves pleasure and joy and happiness and what they think the better good and the long-term good is. So that causes conflict. That causes trials. Difficulties.
1: You know, this was so fascinating. The whole personality thing, uh, I was not familiar with. I've never been taught that. So, first of all, that was extremely fascinating. And it really, to understand that and the root of where it comes from, really pulls away that crutch to use. Uh, our personalities as an excuse for conflict so thank you for that and also I, I i always use the term when people are avoiding biblical peacemaking i I like to use the term peace faking right
2: <laughs> that's good <I laughs> because
1: like that. it's like and, and like you said peace at all costs you know so I'll do anything like you said even lie so thank you for some really good descriptions and and I'm even thinking about a, a a so-called Christian book that talks about boundaries oh, that yeah. are used mm-hmm. and justified mm-hmm. instead of looking at scripture and saying how, and and how can we work through this? Mm-hmm. But you also address sometimes it doesn't always right? happen because yeah. we live in a broken world. Absolutely. So, so, so much good there. I already know this is going to be used um, for, uh, David and I, when we are counseling couples in our own church, we will have them listening to to this. That, already. that book
2: that you're mentioning, that boundaries book, is a, is a, has done a lot of damage.
0: Yes. In yes. the
2: Christian domain, um, because what it does is becomes um, a, a philosophical or psychological mm-hmm. approach to, in a sense. Really seeking revenge, because what really happens here, you basically draw a line in the sand and say to somebody else that you're in conflict with, don't you ever cross that line. Mm-hmm. But if you do, there are going to be consequences. Well, this becomes our excuse now to seek revenge on that other person. Now now I'm going to become vengeful to you because you you crossed the line that I, I drew in the sand. You, you did that. When in reality, like if you go into 1 Peter chapter 2 and the latter part of chapter 2, when Jesus was horribly abused and mistreated, it says he entrusted himself to him who judges justly.
1: Amen.
2: And then he focused on righteous responses, and that becomes the argument of the whole and the whole literary context of that. The passage and even talks then later on in First Peter three about husband wife relationships, mm-hmm. what should happen there if they're married, especially to unbelievers.
1: Right, right. Well, and and you can see how it's just that line in the sand becomes a a, a stunting to the sanctification process because you're you're in effect playing God mm-hmm. and saying. I'm choosing what you can and cannot do Mm -hmm. in my life, Mm -hmm. and which God providentially brought in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so it's just I agree with you, Dr. Mm -hmm. Street. It has been extremely problematic. But thank you. You really help uh, us to see there's a better route. Now, let me ask you. Um, We understand that the source of conflict, as you read in James uh, 4, is flowing from our hearts. Mm -hmm. What's involved in resolving the conflicts that I have? In other words, where do I go next? Now I know my heart's a hot mess. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What do I do now?
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's and this is where the scripture comes in and shines its greatest glory mm-hmm. and the glory of Christ. Because what the scripture does is it gives us a clear means by way we can resolve conflict. First of all, I think scripture really emphasizes the whole principle that Jesus does there in Matthew chapter seven verses one through five, that we've got to be willing to, in a sense, um, take the log out of our own eye before we are start. Uh, picking the little particles out of other people's eyes. And oftentimes I hear this in counseling. A person will say, well, doesn't the Bible say we're not supposed to judge one another? I said, oh, well, you're talking about Matthew chapter seven and verse one. Yeah, that's exactly it. Don't judge lest you be judged. Well, the Bible's not saying you can't judge one another. When you read it within context, it's saying you shouldn't use a form of judgment on other people that's more strict than you use upon yourself. It's not saying you can't judge. And plenty of other places in the scripture, the Bible wants us to be good judgments about other people and, and behavior and so on. I mean, when parents send their kids off to school, you know, they're constantly telling them, be careful of this, be careful that they're, they're teaching them to be um, good judges of other people, their conduct and with their intentions, those kind of thing. It's not as if we're not supposed to judge other people. It's that we've got to turn a stricter form of judgment upon ourselves first before we turn around and judge other people. That That's the idea. In other words, don't go around and try to take the particle or speck out of somebody's eye. In fact, the Greek term for that is actually means particle. It's like a little floaty. Imagine if you had a little floaty in your eye and I said, oh, I see that little floaty, which is, uh, it's hyperbole, but I I see that little floaty. Let me help you take it out and, Well, all along, I've got this log hanging out of my eye. All right, here I'm going to come along and pick this little floaty out of your eye. Well, I've got this huge log that's hyperbole that Jesus is using there. But nevertheless, it teaches a really good point that we've got to be more critical upon ourselves first. And when that happens, you can't do that without a heart of humility. You, You can't be critical of yourself without a humble attitude. So pride, and and when we're training counselors, we always talk about it, you work and work with people who are in conflict with one another and you, you seem to make progress, but you can't get over that last where there's real reconciliation there. Then we tell them, well, the last barrier, usually that's hidden there is pride. There's somebody who is not willing to really take an honest look at themselves first and acknowledge their own sin and then repent of those sins. That becomes the focus in counseling two parties that are in, in conflict, in an adversarial relationship with one another. We want to first have them turn the eye of scrutiny upon their own hearts. You know, what's really going on? What's wrong with me? Why am I so upset about what this other person has said or done? Why has this happened? If you're able to encourage people to do that first, you're going to make a lot of progress in terms of really getting reconciliation. Now, that's sometimes a hard corner to turn. but And, of course, what makes it hard is the prideful issue, uh, the pride that's a part of their heart. But if they're willing to admit it and repent of it, then what does repentance mean? Repentance, if you boil down everything Scripture says about it, is... A change of mind that is so complete that it leads to a change of life. That's repentance. The etymological idea behind repentance is a change of mind, but contextually the word metanoeo, which is the Greek term for repentance, is always used within the sense that I've changed my mind, and that, that change is so complete and so substantive in my thinking that it changes my attitudes, it changes my behavior, it changes my responses to the other person. It is a change of mind that is so complete that it leads to a change of life. That's, that's genuine biblical repentance. So, a person then needs to be be willing to repent of those sins that they identify. And then— Hopefully you have two parties that are willing to do that in front of one another, then you're making good progress. Then the issue becomes forgiveness. The next stage then becomes forgiveness because what does that mean, all right? And there's a lot of variety of different teaching out there in the broader big evangelical world about the issue of of forgiveness. Let me say this right at the outset, and oftentimes I say this in order to get my counselee's attention. There is no such thing in the Bible as unconditional forgiveness, all right? There is no such thing in the Bible as unconditional forgiveness. It doesn't exist anywhere in the Bible. All of Scripture is built upon conditional forgiveness. We cannot forgive one another without first having been completely and fully forgiven by Christ. We can't do that. There's got to be—that's a fundamental condition there. So you say, okay, well, then what is happening in Mark chapter 11 and verse 25 when Jesus talks about the fact, if you have anything against anyone, uh, forgive him. Um, uh, verse 25 says it like this. He says, uh, whenever you stand praying, Jesus says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father in heaven uh, who uh, will also forgive you your transgression, well, forgiveness has two elements to it, two key elements to it in the New Testament broadly. One has to do with attitudinal forgiveness. And in fact, every time that this kind of forgiveness is mentioned, where we are to forgive anyone of anything, it's always within the context of prayer. It's always it. so who's present there? Well, here's a man that's gone to the temple to pray in Christ's description here in Mark 11. Who's there? It's just God and that man. The person who's the offender is not present. So this man's praying before God. So he has to be willing, that is, in his heart before God, to forgive that person. All right? This is what we call attitudal forgiveness. But he cannot offer forgiveness to the other person until that other person has repented. Otherwise, that doesn't take sin seriously. And Jesus then says that later on in Luke 17 and verse 3, where he talks about the fact that if your brother sins, he says, be on your guard, and if your brother sins, rebuke him, and the word that's rebuke there is the uh, Greek term epitamao, which It doesn't mean, there are different Greek terms here that can be used of rebuke. It doesn't mean to fully indict them. It means to tentatively rebuke them. In other words, if your brother sins, you tentatively rebuke him. I think that you sinned against me, but I'm willing to hear your side of the story. That's a tentative rebuke. I'm tentatively rebuking you. I want to hear your side of the story. And you hear what your brother says, and you may say, oh, no, I was wrong. And you say, I'm sorry, I thought you had done something against me. But that's a tentative rebuke. Or you may find out that your brother did sin against you. Then to that particular point, then it says, if that's the case, then, and if he repents, forgive him. And we said that repentance is a change of mind that is so complete that leads to a change of life. Then you have to forgive him based upon his verbal acknowledgement that, you know what, I've repented before God and I and I want to repent before you, I did sin against you, I want you to forgive him. Then Jesus says, you need to do that and you need to do that instantly. You need to do that instantly. And he reinforces that by saying, and if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. In other words, seven times in a day, there's no room to wait for the fruits of repentance there. You have to forgive him based upon his word. Seven times in a day. Wow. And the disciples had a hard time with that. In fact, Mm -hmm. in the very next verse, they say, you can almost see them throw their hands up in the air and say, well, increase our faith, (laughs) you know? And Jesus says, well, it's not based upon the amount of your faith that's at issue here. It's what your faith is based in. If you trust me as your master, that that's what I'm willing to do, then you should be able to do the same thing as well. This should not be a problem for you. You can have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, and you can say this mulberry tree be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. And then he gives, and, uh, then beginning in verse seven of Luke 17, all the way down through verse 10, a description of uh, how that plays out. That is, we we need to follow our master, and as he's told us to forgive based upon our brother's repentance. Now. We cannot forgive unbelievers because unbelievers can't repent. We can never forgive. There's always going to be an issue there, uh, uh, an, an unreconciled issue. What if you're married to an unbeliever? Well, there's never going to be the fellowship on a fellowship level in terms of forgiveness there, but you still have to keep your marital vow to them. That's what your responsibility would be. You still need to follow through and live out righteousness every day in hopes that God would grant them repentance. And by the way, according to 1 Timothy 2.25, repentance is not an act of human will. It's a gift from God. It's something that comes from God. It's not something where I, "Mm," on my own human will, all of a sudden conjure up repentance. God gives me that as a gift. Acts 5... Mm -hmm. Verse 31 says the same thing. It is repentance is always a gift from God. That's always the case. So um, if your brother repents, then you have to say, I forgive you. What does that mean? Well, then that means at least three things. Because we're as Ephesians 4.32, which you just studied recently, talks about we're to forgive as we have been forgiven in Christ. So then, as God has forgiven us, so how should we forgive one another? That means, Jeremiah 31 talks about the fact that he does not any longer remember our sins against us. Not remembering, it doesn't mean that he forgets our sins. God never forgets anything. Not remembering means he no longer holds that sin against us. Forgetting is a passive voice. Not remembering is an active voice in the Hebrew there, which means he actively does not hold our sin to, against us. I like what Corey Timboom says when Corey Timboom says, the Lord takes our sins and plants them in the deepest part of the sea, and then he puts up a no fishing sign. That's what he does. In other words, he actively does not remember our sins against us any longer. So then we have to do the same thing when we forgive somebody. We're forgiving the same way we have been forgiven. So what does that mean? Number one, that means I'm not going to bring throw this up in your face in the future so as to hurt you. I'm not going to do that. It, it, this is a subtle issue. I forgive you. It's a promise that's being made. I'm not going to be historical and drag this up later on throw this in your face and say, well, you remember back when you did this and, you know, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I, I've, I've forgiven you. I'm not going to throw this up in your face. Number two, it means I'm not going to go around your back and talk about it to other people. I'm not going to go and display my sore toes to other people, all right, and, and have them try to sympathize with me. uh, uh, what you've done i'm not going to go and gossip about what you've done about that so i'm not going to bring it up to you i'm not going to bring it up to other people and the third thing and the third one is the hardest one of them all where if we're going to forgive the way god is forgiven then we're not going to dwell on that sin and become bitter and resentful in our own hearts so that means i'm not going to bring it up to you i'm not going to bring it up to others and i'm not going to bring it up to myself I forgive you. I'm making a promise. Now, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that Christians are to say, I'm sorry. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that Christians are to apologize because all we're doing is just dumping emotions on people. What it does say is that we're supposed to grant them forgiveness because when you say, I'm sorry and apologize, you let them know how you feel, but there's no transaction that occurs between you. This is why we call it transactional forgiveness. But when you say, you know, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And then you're the one, or maybe you're the one who needs to be forgiving the other person. Then you forgive that other person. Now you're saying they threw the ball in your court. Will you forgive me? Now you've got to decide, okay, will I forgive? Now I make the promise and I throw the ball back to you. I make the promise. I forgive you then that transaction has taken place. Now, that's the kind of transaction that leads to full and complete reconciliation, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 5. If you know your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled with your brother. All right, that's what leads to it. Because that brings people closer together, not further apart, when you say, okay, you've acknowledged your sin before me, you've repented, you've sought my forgiveness, I've given you forgiveness, there's an exchange that takes place there that brings that relationship closer together, then that's what brings about reconciliation.
0: Wow, that's just, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. I heard so many things there that were just so encouraging um, as I'm just thinking through that process. Um You know, mainly uh, that once we understand the sin in our heart, we've got to work really hard on um, dealing with the log in our own eye, even though there's this conflict with another person. It starts with me. Mm -hmm. And you know how it is when people are hurt, Mm -hmm. they always get so self-focused. It's all about my hurts and my needs and all of that. And and the culture is kind of majors on that. But just taking that time uh, to look at the log in our own eye and then... Just that repentance. And I I really appreciate that you um, just clarified for us that repentance is not just a change of mind, because that's what's commonly taught, Mm -hmm. but it's a change of mind which leads to a change of action. And that is just huge. And then, of course, that in and of itself is um, once you, because you hate your sin at that point, and you're realizing that at the end of the day, you've sinned against a holy God. And that starts to just move you. Um, The other aspect of that too is that oftentimes when people teach on repentance, they think of the day that I repented and believed in Christ and they forget that repentance is ongoing. Mm You know, It's part of that Reformed view that we have an ongoing repentance. And I've had the the privilege of sitting under your teaching for many years as it relates to this topic. We've even uh, taught at conferences where this was a big part of what you taught And there there are just many elements of repentance to consider that I think would be good for you to to go over. But one thought I had before you get there on the issue of forgiveness, I don't know if you remember, we had a conversation about this one day where um, sometimes people expect forgiveness or they will confront you on things that aren't true sin issues. And you kind of find like your feelings are hurt. And the person comes to you and says, my feelings have been hurt or whatever. And they kind of expect you to ask for forgiveness is probably what I'm saying. But we're not to ask for forgiveness for things that are not true sin, right. correct? Right, yeah. right,
2: exactly. I, I, you know, it's interesting you can bring that up because I, I had a, uh, a woman and her husband come for counseling. This is several years ago. And she kept making this statement, my husband um, just constantly sins against me. So I always take that very seriously, start probing what's really going on here. What is the husband doing in terms of sinning against her? And he, he wasn't lying to her. He wasn't saying anything false or anything like that. But it got down to the fact that he sinned against her when he would wear um, clothing and outfits and ties that offended her sense of what was appropriate that was a sin against her. Like a
0: fashion sin. As sin as
2: a fashion sin, exactly. That black was a...
0: covers a multitude of
1: sins. <laughs> so I
0: don't. He must have not been wearing enough black. Yeah. Or... <laughs>
1: okay, so we could do a whole episode on hurt feelings. Wait, have we not?
0: Well, I, yeah. I mean, I mean that. Well, the discussion you and I had that day was, yeah. um, if I extend forgiveness towards someone whose feelings were just hurt and there's not true sin, that even I'm culpable because I'm sinning by asking. By, Absolutely. Okay, yeah.
2: Because I'm, I'm up front acknowledging something that is not true.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. Mm-hmm. I, I can't acknowledge something that's not true just to keep peace. See, that's that keep peace thing. Okay, I'll agree with you, even though I don't really believe that that's the fact. I'll agree with you just to have peace between us. Well, that's not authentic, true Christianity. That's not being absolutely honest. I mean, you guys just went through Ephesians 4.25, you know, that where you have to put off falsehood mm-hmm. and you have to speak truthfully with one another. Mm-hmm. All right? That's authentic Christianity. People think, as long as I don't tell a lie, then I'm okay. No, no, that's just you. you can not tell a lie and still be dishonest. Because you're not telling the truth.
0: Hmm.
2: Uh, A liar is still a liar until they come forth with the whole truth. That's right. Type of thing. And they've got to be willing to do that. In this case, they're not doing that. They're trying to appease the other person Hmm. by acknowledging something that isn't true so that, oh, I don't have time to deal with this or I'm going to, no, I, I can't do that. Um, maybe you don't have time, but maybe you need to say to the other person, let me get back with you and we'll talk about this when sure. I have time. And then come back a little bit later on and say, Well, you know, I don't fully agree with what you the statement that you made there. I don't want to be adversarial with you, but I just don't agree with that. I don't think that's a right representation of what the true reality is. So that you can at least stand for honesty. And maybe that other person will say, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. That's that's not the true reality. See, that kind of thing, when we're very authentic and we're very honest uh, in our relationships, that draws people together. That's one of the things I love about the Generation XYZ.
0: They hate
2: (laughs) uh, people being inauthentic. They just hate Mm -hmm. that. And And I do, too. Genuine Christians should hate that, too. The only problem with that generation is that they equate truth with their emotions and feelings Mm. rather than with objective truth.
0: My personal truth. No, that's just so great. Um, Yeah, so um, I know that you also teach about different elements of repentance. Do you Mm -hmm. mind kind of going into that a little bit? Um, Mm -hmm. That'd be good for us to know.
2: Yeah, there are certain consequences if a person is genuinely repentant. Certain things that should happen— um, as a result of that. And in fact, uh, one of those is really key because, um, I and I've already suggested it a little bit, mm-hmm. because one of those has to do with reconciliation. Yes. Um, that true repentance means that when that conflict is really, really dealt with on a biblical level— It should bring those two parties into a closer relationship, hence the reconciliation. If I'm talking to parents that are listening to this, uh, you kind of understand this. If you have two siblings that get into a little sibling disagreement and war in the home, the tendency is to jump in the middle of that kind of thing and say, now stop it. I don't want you to do that to your brother. I don't want you to do that to your sister. I don't want you to say that. You need to ask that person to forgive you for what you did, which is all good up to this particular point. But then at that particular point, the parents will say, well, then I want you to go to your room and I want you to go to your room. In other words, they split them up at that point. And I always say in parenting and rearing, that's the opposite of what should happen. You got to find the smallest closet in your in your house and put the two of them in there and teach them how to play together. In other words, you're encouraging reconciliation, not separation. That's why in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, if you know your brother has something against you, go and not just make peace with him, be reconciled to him. Be reconciled to him. That should always be the goal. That's why I like to call it conflict reconciliation. That's why I like to call it that. Because there's going to be that full and complete reconciliation. So that's one element of it. But that's not the only element of it. Two, there is also an element of that that is um what we refer to as restitution zacchaeus would be a good example of this where the lord jesus christ goes ends up going to his house and zacchaeus had been a tax collector and zacchaeus had and in, in those days tax collectors could actually extract from people more than what the government wanted from them. And then they would keep the excess. And so a lot of tax collectors were cheats because they would way overcharge people. And that's the way that they got rich. And the Jews despised that. And of course, the Romans had the authority behind it. So the Jews couldn't do a whole whole lot about it. Zacchaeus was one of those despised tax collectors. Jesus goes to his house. And Zacchaeus then acknowledges the fact, and this shows his true change of heart. He says, if I have defrauded anybody of anything, I'm going to pay them back multiple fold. Uh, I'm going to pay them back. And Jesus says, "Uh, today salvation has come to this particular household because he was willing to make restitution for anybody that he had cheated. And if, if a person is genuinely repentant then part of the fruit of that is going to be restitution. If there's genuine biblical repentance and we have the capacity to be able to make restitution for the wrong that we've done, then that's what we need to do. Another element of that is regret. Now, as 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 talks about, we should not regret leaving our sin, but we should regret having done the sin in the first place. Two different kinds of regret. There needs to be a regret that we did it. This is a sorrow. This is a grief over the fact that we sinned against them. Sometimes when we have parties walk away from a supposed reconciled relationship and there's no real sorrow on the offending party's part, then there I have red flags all over the place at whether or not that particular person is genuinely repentant. And in fact, really this In dealing with interpersonal relationships, let's go back to the book of James just for a moment. We talked about James 4 earlier, uh, but later on in James 4, just a few verses later after talking about what is it the source of quarrels and conflicts among you, how do we know that a person is genuinely repentant? And he says in verse 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble Submit, therefore, verse 7 says, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double minded Which is an Old Testament reference to the fact that um, uh, the heart and the hands. The heart was a, an Old Testament reference to everything that was part of the inner man. The hands were the expression, the actions of the external man, heart and hands, inner inner man, outer man, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then it says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So there should be that kind of regret whereby there is genuine remorse over having done the sin in the first place that needs to be there so all of these things are a fruit of repentance um, that should be there that's how we know that a person is genuinely repentant they're willing to make restitution they're willing to reconcile they're willing they show regret over the fact that they have sinned even in the first place and caused other people grief and sorrow
1: That's so good, Dr. Street. And just that idea of godly sorrow that leads to repentance um, and not just because you got caught,
0: right? That's right.
1: (laughs) Not because you were busted, right? And, And that's really important because you keep pointing out how this is going to bring reconciliation, but you mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast that this is how we glorify God. Mm -hmm. And so we now realize when we're in this idea of of godly sorrow, we have shamed the name of our Lord and Savior. We have not brought glory to Him. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, that's... We have this interpersonal conflict that needs to be worked on and reconciled, but we have this great God who gave us his son, Jesus Christ, and so we want to honor and please him, and then that flows out all of these things that you've mentioned, and so that's just so encouraging just hearing this come straight from Scripture, James 4, and that that mourning over our sin, Mm -hmm. a biblical regret, is so, so good, but... Let me ask you one more question. Mm -hmm. What essential qualities do you see in Scripture that are necessary to bring about complete reconciliation and this idea of we do want the unity, right, between one another uh, in our conflict? What, what, What are the necessary qualities there?
2: Yeah, I think it's going to start with uh, genuine biblical humility, as we talked about earlier. It's got to do that. You're never going to find reconciliation between two parties until there is a renunciation of pride in the life. And because pride is the only thing that's going to cause you to, in a sense, stand your ground, not give an inch, not being willing to concede any truth in the other person's argument so humility's got to be there. The humility of Christ has has got to be there. And it's really interesting to me because I mean in John chapter 13, you know, there's the example of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. And at the end of that, the disciples are still confused and looking at one another in wonderment because repeatedly he has warned them. I mean, this punctuates the whole chapter of John 13. Uh he's warned them that one of them is going to betray him. And they have no idea who that is. They they, they don't have any idea. Because remember, he has just gone around and washed all their feet. And he's told them that one of you is going to, going to um, betray me. So they're watching him to see how he's going to treat this other person differently. And he doesn't. He doesn't treat Judas any different than he does anyway. He washes Judas's feet. And so at the end of this, and this is what makes... In John 13, I think the most important verse in the entire chapter there is in verse 22 where it says, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which he was speaking. Why? Because he didn't treat this person who was going to betray him any differently than he did the other disciples who eventually were going to go on and give their lives for him. All right. Um, He washed all their feet. And then Peter gets, you know, just turned up about this and he motions to John there at the table, says, ask him, who is this person that's going to do it? And Jesus' response is interesting there because he turns around and he says to him, he says, it's the person that I'm going to dip the morsel and give it to him. Well, what makes that so astounding is back in those days, especially the Passover meal, the person that you dipped the morsel first and gave to was the honored guest at the table. So he gives this to Judas And they're looking at each other like, wait a minute, honored guest, and you just washed his feet, and now you've given him this morsel uh, and, and treated him like the honored guest. What is that? But after all of that happens, when that's all done, then in verse 31, after Judas leaves to go out to betray him, Jesus turns around the disciples and says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now, why does he say that? He says that because that which brings the most glory to God is the person who is the most humble. Because God gets all the glory. Anybody that has any admixture of pride in it whatsoever, God's not going to get the glory. Not going to get the glory. But it's the person who is willing to just be absolutely humble. I mean, you can't imagine... More of a difficult adversarial relationship than somebody who's going to betray you. All right, betrayal is like the the worst sin of all. In the Middle Ages, there was the poem that was written uh, that uh, talked about hell. It's a fictitious thing, but in, in the in the depths of hell, the the worst types of hell was reserved for. Uh, those who betrayed other people. those are the, That's the worst type of hell, those people who betray other people. Well, Judas has ju- is going out to betray Jesus, and Jesus washes his feet, gives him the morsel, treats him as the honored guest, and then he turns around to his disciples after he leaves and says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So humility has got to be a key quality in bringing about real reconciliation so that, as we you mentioned, God gets all the glory in this. And that's what you want to focus those two parties that are at each other. This is not about you winning or you winning. This is how much glory can we bring to God in this? How much can we do that? Because then that means that we're going to, be willing to get down on our hands and knees in a humble fashion in front of that other person. That doesn't mean we're gonna admit things that are not true, I don't mean that. But we're gonna be humble enough to seek that kind of reconciliation because it's not about me winning this argument, it's not about me being on top of this conflict, it is all about bringing glory to God whatever happens in this conflict. That's what I need to do. So that's gotta be the chief quality that has to be there. Now, there are other qualities as well. For example, let me draw your attention real quickly to um, 2 Timothy, where Paul is admonishing the young pastor, Timothy, with um, about false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And, um, and of course, they've caused a lot of the problem there in the church at Ephesus that where Timothy was serving. In verse 24, it says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. There's that quarreling again. But here's the qualities. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, with gentleness. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, repentance is a gift from God, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That kind of sums it up. So what are we talking about? We're talking about um, not a quarrelsome personality, but kindness, being able to teach, patient, gentle, correcting those in opposition. That's what should happen when major conflict occurs. Those are the qualities we're looking for.
0: Um, I was just thinking, you know, Kim and I often uh, say to each other on our podcast that it's not about you. It's about Christ. And so humility is just obviously such an important thing because the culture often uh, makes it about them. It's my personal offense, you know, my rights mm-hmm. and all of that. And and we know full well that uh, we live for the glory of God as you said, Kim. And so I just thank you for coming on the show today and just helping us and our listening audience to have a better understanding of biblical reconciliation, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think oftentimes we think that all that's involved when we're trying to deal with conflicts in our life is to forgive from the heart. You know we, know, we want to work on that attitudinal forgiveness, no doubt. We pray that, these, that those that have offended us will come so that we can extend forgiveness. Um, but we don't really think about the reconciliation and the restoration aspect at all. Yeah. And so I think it's good that you came on because you've helped us tremendously. And I think for anybody that's listening that's taking the ACBC exam, that last that last few questions on this <laughs> topic, listen carefully because this is kind of the answer we're looking for. I mean, it, it is in parts. Um, but thank you for just helping us to understand that better. Thank you for your ministry, Dr. Mm-hmm. Street. It's just Amen. been Such a blessing for me personally to just um, have you in my life as a mentor and just boss and just so many things. We're just so thankful.
2: Thank you. Thank Uh, you for what you gals are doing here with this podcast. What a tremendous opportunity to have wonderful influence in the lives of a lot of Christian women that are looking for good, godly, biblical input.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And as we close this episode, uh, we also want to take the time to thank uh, the Masters University and our just wonderful Kaylin, who produces and helps us to host the women's podcast. Um, you can find all of our episodes at masters.edu backslash womens-hope. That's masters.edu backslash womens-hope. And, of course, we're also part of the Bar Network, which is great, as well as finding us, at least on a Facebook group, on Instagram and Twitter. And Kim told us last time, and I think it's just phenomenal, that you can actually find episodes of Women's Hope on the Masters University YouTube channel. Yes. So that's a cool thing there. I love that.
1: Well, and what is so wonderful, we're we're being heard all across the world. I mean, every single day, I'm finding out of new countries that are that are chiming into the podcast. But with YouTube, when these are being posted on YouTube, they can have it translated. So it doesn't just have to be Mm. English speaking people in other countries now. As they put more and more on YouTube, they will be able to listen in their uh, language, their own language. And so that's going to broaden Uh, the ability for Women's Hope to be heard even more. So we just praise
0: God for that. That's just a gift from him. We're so thankful. A true, true peacemaking all over the world in all different kinds of languages. Well, we hope that your hearts were edified this episode and motivated towards Mm -hmm. true reconciliation and restoration, even in difficult relationships that you might find yourself in currently. Um, We do have a real enemy out there and that greatly delights um, in disunity in the body of Christ. And so we who love Christ are urged by God to not only walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, but we're also to do it so that we're eager in maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So may we all be compelled out of love for Christ to do just that. So until next time, as far as it depends on you, strive to live peaceably with all as you abide in Christ. Thank you for listening to the Women's Hope podcast of the Masters University. For more resources and episodes, visit masters.edu slash womenshope. For more information on the Masters University, visit masters.edu.